books and reading at their very best are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Forward Radio, where many of you hear the perks of being a book lover, is having a fourth birthday celebration pledge drive, which runs from March 27th through April 9th. Help keep community radio and a wide variety of viewpoints on the air. Go to forwardradio.org and make your donation there. The famous American author Truman Capote once said, Life is a moderately good play with a badly written third act. Capote's own life is the subject of the one-man play True, written by J. Preston Allen, which appeared on Broadway in 1989. The play is now being performed by local theater company Pandora Productions, a group that focuses on producing plays by and or about LGBTQ people, as an on-demand show available for two weeks, March 26th through 28th and April 2nd through 4th. This production of True stars Louisvillian Jason Cooper, a veteran theater artist. He started his own company, the Chicken Coop Theater, two years ago, which focuses on producing lesser-known plays, but he is also a high school English teacher at a private school where he is engaging the next generation in the love of reading and has just completed writing a memoir as part of a Master's of Fine Arts creative writing program. Jason has immersed himself in the life of an artist, whether it be acting, directing, literary appreciation, or writing. In True, Cooper helps audiences see the celebrity of Truman Capote in addition to the person he was behind the mask. Some writers just do their thing and live normal lives, while others become reclusive and avoid the limelight. But Truman Capote became a celebrity whose persona at times eclipsed his literary works. Jason talks to us about why Truman Capote was so important to the gay community, why working in the theater has been such a good training ground for life as a teacher, what actual Capote mannerisms Jason felt he had to tone down so audiences would find him believable, and why he thinks bad movie musicals from the 1980s are epic. Our guest today is Jason Cooper, who is a local theater artist and who is starring in Pandora Productions True. So he is going to tell us about that production and his role uh, and Truman Capote and and some other things as well. So Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thanks so much. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Are you originally from Louisville? I am. I'm originally from Louisville, born and raised. I lived for a few years in my 20s uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, and then I spent a few years in Chicago. And then uh, I kind of always knew I'd come home to Louisville. Tulay Roots, my family's all here. And- were you a big reader when you were a kid? We always like to ask our guests if they were readers yeah. as children. Always. Uh, I was a terrible student, which I'm a teacher now, which is ironic. But uh, I was always a big reader. We always, I'm the youngest of four, and my parents were readers. And we always had 
lots and lots of books in our in our house. And as a young kid, I was fixated on certain ones. I remember like having asked my mother to read me this British children's book called Penny's Holiday. And at, at one point she had it memorized. But yeah, the only thing I really ever held in at school was was reading and, and discovered what I loved at a young age. I liked, you know, thrillers and mysteries and horror and kind of then went through that journey of young adult fiction and then, you know, discovered Stephen King and it was all over. So then I was I was hooked. And I went to the Brown School here in Louisville, which is um small liberal arts school. And I took a class in the 10th grade called Multicultural Literature and reread The Color Purple and Native Sun and a lot of coming of age novels that I never would have read on my own and never would have sought out that really broadened my horizon as a reader. Like Ordinary People was in there, The Chosen. I'm just a really broad range of coming of age novels and that really that cemented the deal I was always a reader before that but I remember like 10th grade really is when I was asking for books for my birthday books for Christmas hoarding them <laughs> like I wouldn't go to the library I went to the bookstore I wanted them in my in my possession and it's still that way what's your reading life like now I never could multi-read I could never could do more than one book at a time but now since the lovely world of audible I, I listen to a book in the car and then I'm always just reading a book for pleasure. And I'm in a monthly book club. So whatever is the assigned novel of the month is usually what I'm reading for fun. <laughs> but yeah, I personally, if, if it's me, if I'm going on vacation and I'm going to stock up, it, it's horror. I don't know why. I don't write horror. But it's my, those are my books of choice. So you are starring in the Pandora Productions on-demand performance of True. And it's a 1989 play written by Jay Preston Allen mm -hmm. based on the life of Truman Capote. Can you give our listeners just a little background on the play? Yes, it's Christmas Eve of 1975. And Truman Capote was involved in a scandal at the moment because he let Esquire magazine publish a, a chapter of a novel he was working on, which really spilled the tea on his rich and famous friends. So he was being blackballed at the time. Over the night, he's reflecting on how he got where he was, just looking back over his life. So it's really, it's one night in his life, the, the play is. It's, it unfolds in real time, and he breaks the fourth wall and just addresses the audience directly on how his life sort of fell apart. And he doesn't really have much personal accountability in, in it. He doesn't really recognize his own hand that played a part and I had trouble with the script because the way it was written because the author Jay Preston Allen wrote it the way Capote speaks so grammatically I, there's some of the things they don't like, they roll off the tongue they don't sound right and when you're saying them but when you speak with them like he would that they, they make sense but uh, he's because he's such a wordsmith he was such a wonderful talker and he loved to talk about himself <laughs> loved it <laughs> <laughs> He was a really fascinating guy, and I got hooked on reading some of his work after I read In Cold Blood. Mm -hmm. And then I saw the movie Capote with Philip Seymour Hoffman in it, which was yeah. just brilliant. And then I've got on to read several more of his works. He's such a interesting yet somewhat ethically challenged person. So did you do a lot of research about him to play the role? I knew a lot about him, actually. I I'm fascinated by him, and um, I was not the first choice to play this role in this production. There was another actor attached, and their schedule, he, they suddenly were unavailable. And I had asked, I was like, are you holding auditions for 
the Truman Capote show because I'm very, very interested in Michael Drury, the artistic director, because of quarantine, because of the way the productions were. He's like, no, I just sort of went ahead and cast it. And I was like, oh, okay. I love Truman Capote. And then he, so he called me when it became available and he's like, okay, we, you want to send in a tape or a tape? I'm old. Do you want to send in a tape? <laughs> We are too. (laughs) I said yes, because I I knew the voice. I knew this particular Capote. Like if if I I couldn't play him as a young man, like I couldn't play him when he was actually writing in Cold Blood. But Mm -hmm. in this play, a few years older than I am. And that's the one I really like, I I identify. We have a lot of similarities and a lot of differences too. I, I recognize a lot of myself in him. And I had read in Cold Blood, I'd read other voices in other rooms, some of his novellas. He's a kind of odd writer all over the place. He doesn't have a specific genre that he writes in. He's just a little bit of everything. Fascinating person. There's a line in the play that he says, I used to be famous for writing books. Now I'm famous for being famous. Because he really became a, just a celebrity. He did it long before the Kardashians. Yeah, yes. But that's what he was towards the end of his life. He was just a, a guest on talk shows. His last novel was he was working on for 20 years and it was published after his death. He never published again after In Cold Blood in his lifetime. And that book messed him up. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of destroyed him, uh, his career in a lot of ways. Did you watch like films or listen to recordings of him to, I guess, immerse yourself? Yes, I watched him on a lot of talk shows around this era. His voice was always affected, but it got really almost a caricature towards the end of his life and and he was very much in on it he had a very specific walk and he oh, he's very fidgety he never stands still actually he made one movie as an actor uh he's in a, a neil simon movie called murder by death and it's a farcical whodunit and it's really really problematic if you watch it now it is really racially insensitive and uh, politically incorrect my dad loved that movie and I remember watching that movie a lot as a kid. And then I saw so I knew his voice from that. And that was this exact same, like, same, same year. And so huh. I, I knew his voice well. But if I spoke exactly like him, people wouldn't believe it. They would be like, there's no one who talks like this. And the play would also be three hours long because he spoke so <laughs> slowly. <laughs> so slowly. So you mentioned that the the play's dramatic action relates to this magazine article that was in Esquire in 1975. This chapter in his book, Unanswered Prayers, he sort of blows the door open on New York City socialites. And and a lot of those were his friends and acquaintances. And so the fallout from that, you know, I started doing a little bit of research because I had never heard about this story and there was somebody who even committed suicide as a result of this so what was it like for you as an actor trying to walk that minefield and get the performance the way you and Michael Drury sort of envisioned it you have to think like he he thought and he thought it was no big deal he did not think of what he did as an act of betrayal and and I don't know how how truthful is but he says they always knew he was writing this book and it was meant to be done tongue in cheek, a wink and a nod. It's it's humorous. And, you know, he says like he's not bound by any sort of code of ethics because he's an artist. And he truly believes that. And that's how I, you get into his headspace is he truly believes he did nothing wrong. And he also believes that they will come around. And they never did. 
he never reconciled with those friends. They were done. I mean, they they thought of it as the ultimate act of betrayal. Uh, I've never read Answered Prayers. I don't like books that are that are published posthumously because I don't believe you're hearing the artist's intent. But so I've so never read Answered Prayers. But I do know that he, he told other people secrets, and you don't do that. That's me personally. You know, I'm, I'm working on getting my master's in creative writing right now at Spalding University, and I write creative nonfiction, personal narratives, and it's very hard to tell your story that involves other people and not tell their stories. And he really, he crossed the line. But he never took any responsibility for it. He, he thinks that they'll, they'll, they'll understand because I'm an artist. And he thought they were close enough. I mean, he was friends with these people. He spent... 20 years in, in their company. He blames them. He says anybody who, you know, cozies up next to a writer knows, should know the risk. <laughs> <laughs> he's flat out says that in the, in the play. He's not from that rich, powerful, old money, New York society world. He's not from there. I don't think he understood there's an unspoken code. You don't spill the secrets and he did it. Well, I have tried to use that line on my husband, right? Like I'm a writer. And so that doesn't fly with my husband. So I'm not able to like write about him because he's like, nope, that won't fly. But I imagine that was kind of fun though, to play him because he was so different from maybe some of your own ethical things you wouldn't do. Was it fun to play him? It's very fun to play him. Uh, You know, I've been doing theater my entire life. And really nonstop for, I would say, the last 25 years. And this is, I think, the best work I've ever done. And definitely in my favorite shoes to step into because he's just so, he's just such a character. Even though he's a real person, playing him is the full package because you get to inhabit a different walk. You get to inhabit a different voice. And you get to inhabit somebody who, who casually talks about really, really iconic, legendary, famous people as if they're friends. I mean, he talks about his friendship with Marilyn Monroe as if it's your friend Judy next door. I mean, it's it's, it's really fascinating. And that's where I'm, I'm not, I'm going to like him in a lot of ways, but I'm also not like him in a lot of ways. Like I'm not impressed by people, like people with power make me uncomfortable. So he would like hold court with rich and powerful and famous and they would like put him on a pedestal. Whereas I'm like, I have no interest in those people and they make me uncomfortable and it's not my world. He was able to exist not in his world for a long time and, and hold, hold sway over them until he, until he opened his mouth and spilled the beans. <laughs> so I'm interested in that this is a one person play. And so I'm wondering as somebody who's done theater for a long time, what are some of the joys and then also some of the pressures of being the only person communicating with the audience for a whole performance? It's physically taxing. Michael and I have, have discovered through this process, and he said that the previous one-man shows that Pandora has done this season has told him the same thing, is you really only have about 90 minutes of rehearsal time in you. After that, literally, I start talking gibberish. I'm like, I'm trying to say the words from the, the page, but they're coming out strange because it's just you, and you're, you're hyper-focused, and there's nothing to give you any sort of cue. It's, it's hard. I will say, I've, there are just at this point now, we film it next week. So we start tech tomorrow. There are two spots where they come out of nowhere. And I consistently, I'm like, oh, what's next? He's really, he's shifting because he wants to change the subject. And I'm going, because I cannot. <laughs> like, with, on the set, I'm looking for physical cues. Like, oh, look at that. And that'll remind you. Because it, that's the challenge is he just talks for, for 90 minutes. 
and the stories have flow and they connect. So it's, that was easy. And I, I had no more trouble going off book, learning my lines for this show than I have in any other show where I have a smaller part or I'm part of an ensemble. If they flow and they connect, they just come to you after a while. But it, there's nobody there's nobody out there to help you. I'm really making eye contact with nobody. And it's strange. It's a strange experience being alone on the stage for that long. So when you're doing rehearsals, is it you and just Michael there? And he's giving you feedback? Otherwise, you could just do rehearsal in your own house. So our rehearsal started on like this. Just, okay. Uh, me looking into the computer. And that was just sort of us talking about the character and building the intentions. But then we had somebody come in who stays on script for me. So there was she was always in the room and Michael and I. And then now that the production designers is, are, are starting to be there. In fact, like the, we ran the show Thursday and I actually had people seeing it for the first time. The costume designer, the set designer, the lighting designer. And I started flying through it. I'm like, flying. And this man did not talk fast. I talk fast. He did not. And I, I knew my lines, but I was flying through it. And then that's on you alone Is it- on stage to set the tempo. Is it a one act play? I mean, do you get any breaks, like even just to take a drink of water or something? Because I would assume well, that your mouth would be really dry after talking for 90 minutes. There is a break. There's an act break. But I drink all through act one because he's having his cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> So that's not a problem. I'm like, I'm running out, but he was a drinker. I mean, since it will be streaming, there won't be a built-in intermission. You can pause it whenever you want, but there is an act break. It's a two-act play, 90 minutes. Like the day before Christmas Eve and then Christmas Eve. It's actually very Christmassy. I would um, I would do this show again for a holiday show because Christmas is a, a big theme of it. See, this would be the type of Christmas show I'd be all in for. <laughs> like the, the sentimental schmaltzy, you know, like, let's love each other. I don't want any part of that. But this backstabbing, you know, <laughs> vicious Christmas, that's my Christmas. He talks a lot about writing holiday memory, which is a classic of his. And, and he also talks about his bad history with Christmases. So it's a very much looming presence in the play. So Christmas in March. What is it that, that is compelling for audiences about this play? Cause you know, I I'm a teacher too, and you're a secondary school teacher. So you talk to students, at least I do about the universal experience and universal ideas yeah. in a play. So uh-huh. what are some of those that you feel like are important to well, this show? I think that this play really takes a look at the nature of celebrity. It kind of peels back the layers of, you know, celebrity. You get a really kind of behind the scenes look at a man who created some of the most famous works of the 20th century and, and talks about their their construction, you know, basically. He talks about writing in cold blood and how much it took out of him. He talks about writing a, a Christmas memory and, he, and also friendship and what it, means he thinks of himself as a very loyal friend and doesn't understand what he has done is betrayal. He will not acknowledge it. You know, he, he keeps giving himself a pass and, and it takes a look at the nature of friendship and really ultimately being an outsider. He never belonged to that world. He never really tried to belong to that world, but he existed in it. And that's, I think, dangerous. You know, you, you need to find your tribe and he just let himself be worshipped and sort of adored and a, kind of a mascot for these really rich, famous, powerful women. And also, though, he was a really true pioneer uh, in the gay movement. 
He was an out gay man in the 60s. That's unheard of. And he made no apologies. And you could just look at the, the historical context. The play takes place at Christmas Eve, 1975. And the historical context of what the world was like, what the country was like at that moment is very present in the play. You could kind of see where we were. He talks about going to Studio 54. It's, it's a lot of fun to look at the history in that lens. And we're at a point now where this mid seventies are history, it's not recent history anymore. It's, it's another world. So I was going to ask you a little bit about that because Pandora Productions focuses on plays with an LGBTQ theme or characters and, you know, Capote was gay, but I was wondering if this play, if his sexuality plays a large role or is it more about just highlighting the life of an artist who also happens to be gay? Does he talk a lot about his sexuality? Not a lot. No, there's one speech he talks about, but he talks about other people not knowing their own sexual identity. No, it's not a large part of it. It's just very much just part of who he was. I mean, he does, he talks a little bit about how it made him an outcast, but it's it's not a huge part of the play. It's just an accepted fact of part of who he is. It's much more about his childhood like being abandoned by his parents and raised by elderly relatives in a small town. That's much more prominent than his sexuality. But, you know, if you've seen the movie Capote, he definitely had a very strange relationship to the, the murderer uh, yeah. in cold blood. And, and it, I mean, he was in love with him. He was. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you've seen Capote, you saw that story. And I do talk about that in the show, too. But it's much more about his life and how he was shaped by his life experiences. And that's just one small part of it. But he was a a trailblazer. If you're going to look at, you know, gay history, Truman Capote is a prominent figure. So a lot of theater production companies, I mean, COVID just has made so many changes, right? Because you have to still connect with audiences. You know, you talked a little bit about preparing for the show, but tell us a little bit about as far as the streaming and bringing in costumes and all that stuff. What does that look like for you, you know, in terms of this production? For this show, it's being filmed as a live stage show. So it's a, it's being produced as if an audience is coming into the, the theater to see it. Full set, gorgeous set, designed by Eric Allgaier. And we are filming it as if the audience is in the room now. The camera will be able to do different angles and get it right up in my face. But uh, it's not a virtual show. It's a, it's a live show filmed and then streamed. I have my own theater company, the Chicken Coop Theater Company. And we're, all, we're about two years old and we only got to do one live production. And we were getting ready to start tech for our second when COVID hit. And sort of just sort of stay alive this past fall, we did two online shows. And we did one this way, where we put the setup, designed the costumes, staged it, filmed it. And then we did another one where it was Zoom, basically, a Zoom call show. And they were both successful to various degrees and in various ways, and both not successful in others. And there's a whole world of creativity out there for virtual shows. A really good friend of mine is a producer in Chicago, and he thinks that, that component is going to remain an option. It, it, I'm not now licensing companies. I'm not sure if they're on board yet, and you have to pay separate licensing rights if you wanted to stream it. But I think that after this, streaming shows might always be an option for, for audiences. They haven't shown up yet in droves for virtual shows, for online shows. And I thought they would have by halfway into this quarantine when you couldn't go see live theater. 
and the fact that there's so much creatively you can do. But my experience this past year and my conversations with other people is that the audiences have not shown up yet. I think they're biding their time so they can get back into the theater and see a lot. Mm. Which is encouraging for a live theater artist, but also a little discouraging because there's a, a whole new medium out there that people are using so creatively and so enjoyably. I've been watching this theater in California. They do something once a month and it's, I, I sit on the floor and laugh my head off because they're so funny. And I'm like, there's good stuff out there. Hopefully we don't have to test that because we can get back to live theater. But I think if this were to go on, I think they would show up. I wonder, because my technological savvy is, you know, like I could fit it in a thimble. And I don't know on my own that I could figure out how to take a, something and move it to my TV so it feels like a movie. You know, so yeah. I wonder if, if part of that is just people feel like I am on my computer all day long and then to be sitting at my so. desk. Do you think that's part of it? Yes, I do think so. And, it, you know, it's really easy if you, to just airplay it to your television, but only if you know how to do it. If you don't know how to do it, it's overwhelming. You're like, I'm not even going to try. I think that's a big, I think that's a big part of it. My mother, she wants to see True. She's going to have to come over here and watch it because I couldn't even begin to. <laughs> I, even, I mean, I, I have to tell her how to turn the computer on. And I think there's a, there's a lot of that. I got a lot of emails for our, the chicken coop shows, like, how do I do this? And they want you to tell them rather than read a long email with instructions. I think that there is a, a technology reticence. People are like, I don't want to deal with all that. I'll watch Netflix. You know? Just because they know how to do it. And yes. Yeah. And then, you know, you can't, I can't fault people for wanting to do what's easy. It's just like a live show, but it's being filmed. But is there a difference in the way that you perform because it's being filmed? Does that make sense? Yes. I don't think that I've altered my performance at all, but I think the camera will capture things the live audience might not, like just small facial gestures. I do play for the back of the house. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't do a lot of serious work like this. I don't do a lot. I'm, I'm comedy. I'm broad comedy, especially. So, I, you know, I have not yet been told to, to bring it down, but I think it's because I did my homework on him and, 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 and he's such a distinct character that I really am him. I'm not trying to spray the back of the walls with it. I, so I haven't altered it, but I do think that there will be things you see that you wouldn't see if you were sitting in the audience. I hope. That's my intention, at least. Well, you are, as I mentioned, you're a, uh, also a high school English teacher. And so with that being part of your profession, you dig in text and literature deeper than you know the average person. So do you feel like having that as part of your experience, does that change how you are as a thespian? And have you ever taught Capote to your students? I have not taught Capote to my students, but I do think it, it does change, not change the way I, I approach a text, but I definitely pay attention to diction, word choice, syntax, semantics, I think more. So I, like I look from the writer's perspective, like why is this written this way? This means something. This person's name is alliteration. That means something. There's a reason that I, I, I do think as an English teacher, I teach at a college prep school that's very literature heavy. And so I do look at the text in a way that, you know, an author doesn't just write words. It's not word vomit. Words are chosen specifically. And that's for me, that's where I am. Like, why is he saying this instead of this? Why is this particularly the way he speaks grammatically so strange well because he talked like that you know what I mean so it's not a typo so I do I think I approach a script if from in that way like Shakespeare like I, I'm not a Shakespearean actor it's just not my thing but 
teaching it, it just unfolds every year. I mean, I've taught Romeo and Juliet for nine years straight. And every year I pick up on something new. And so with Shakespeare, I think now if I did a Shakespeare piece, I would definitely approach that as an English teacher. Because I'm like, okay, I know how to break this down now. I understand this a lot more. I teach middle and high school students. And sometimes I think that they're like, how do you know all this stuff? And I'm like, well, part of it's practice. But this isn't just the first time I picked up this book. I've read this book and taught this book any number of years. Oh. And it's it's like a muscle, you know, uh-huh. it's like with anything, you, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And you can see things. I mean, when I was 16, and I was first reading Jane Eyre, it was like, went completely over my head. But now I see things partly because I've used that muscle so many times. Uh huh. Every year, and I'm teaching the same book, I'm able to be more clear when communicating the book. I just teach it better each year. So I'm like, oh, I'm real sorry for you, you people who had my first year at this book. (laughs) (laughs) You teach high school and you do the same novel year after year. You are an expert in that novel. Mm -hmm. It's just, it seeps in. I feel that way about my children. Like my first child, I'm like, I'm really sorry for those first couple of years. That was a hot mess. But my third child is like, oh, she knows what she's doing now. That's the opposite. I'm the youngest and my older siblings are always like, you have it so easy. <laughs> Constantly. Even now we're in our 40s. You had it so easy. <laughs> My daughter, she actually was assigned in Cold Blood by Capote this year in her high school class, which I actually thought was a really good choice, especially for my daughter, because she loves all those Netflix true crime series. Right. And so Uh I thought, oh, my gosh, this is like a perfect kind of classic book to try to introduce to a younger generation who are really into that true crime. It's the greatest year. She's a senior. Senior. Okay. Yeah, I knew that it's in the curriculum. And been in their curriculum for a while but it could not be more timely i mean it's it's sort of the grandfather of true crime right and that set the bar high and true crime is so popular right now we're actually yeah i'm rereading it this month because it's my book club's choice we sort of oh. chose that because i'm doing this show and we're going to talk about the book and then we're going to watch the show and because inkle blood really altered his life and and so it, it's very present in this in this play in certain moments but it's it's just good you know what I mean? It's just, he's such an observer and can tell somebody's story so almost as if he were there because he gets people to spill. I mean, people tell him their most intimate things. I love that students are reading In Cold Blood and, and you know, as an English teacher, I don't know if you are having the same issue, but the, the canon definitely needs to be reexamined. And there are some things that just don't belong in the curriculum anymore that, that were maybe relevant for students in the 80s. But in prior, but they're just not not anymore. So I love 20th century literature becoming more and more as part of literary canon. And even uh, 21st century things are, are in there. Like I, I'm teaching right now, The Hate You Give. Oh, I love that book. Fantastic book. Mm. It couldn't, you know, could it be more timely? I do not think so. No. You know, and it, our classes are so intense and so passionate. And I have students who've been asleep all year or suddenly like, what? You know. It, <laughs> <laughs> a good book, a contemporary piece, something that they identify with, brings yeah. them to it. And I, I also, I am a huge believer in independent reading time for students. And I start every class with 10 minutes of independent reading, any book of their choice. I've only ever said no to a book once because I don't believe 
when these kids say come into high school and say, I hate reading, a lot of them, they think they hate it because they've never got to read what they like because they don't know what they like because they've never got to choose their own books. And you don't develop strong reading skills, reading the things you're forced to read. You develop them by reading what you like, and then you bring them to the stuff you're, you're forced to read. And I've, I've had so many students, so many. It's like, that's the first book I ever finished on my own. Or I like wow. reading now. Or, that's the first book I ever loved. That happens every year. Every year. That, to me, is huge. Huge. Yeah. We all know you can fake your way through a class novel. You know, you can't. I think I did it a couple of times in college. Don't tell. Um, but <laughs> they're not reading that with their independent reading books because they like it. They're reading it of their own volition, and that's huge. And it gives them some autonomy, too. And that, that's how you make readers. That's how you cultivate lifelong readers, in my opinion. So we can't finish without asking you to tell us about the Chicken Coop Theater. So tell us why you started it. And a little bit about it. Chicken Coop Theater Company is my own theater company. And I've been in the back of my mind for a very long time, but I was always an actor. And a few years ago, I was asked to direct a show. And I had no, I had never directed other than in college. Like, you know what? Sure. I've, I've been wanting to try it. And as soon as this, we started, I was like, oh, this this is my next chapter. Is I want to direct. And then that led to, I want to actually... I want to produce and direct. Like I want to, to be able to be in the driver's seat and like I have a, I have a vision for a show from start to finish. And um, as an actor, you're just what you're part of a team and the designers come in and do their art and the director has their vision and you are part of the machinery. But I, I very much like the idea of my artistic vision being produced on the stage. And also I found there was a huge lack of types of shows in our community. There was one musical, popular musical, that five companies did in one season. There are limitless shows out there and so many that I want to do and no one does. So when I developed the Chicken Coop, our, our mission statement is, is producing lesser known and underproduced works. And there's so many theater companies. And everybody, every theater artist wants to start their own theater company. And, you know, the odds of it succeeding are, are slim. And, is you know, we're already all fighting to get butts and seats. But, you know, but you get one life is what I'm trying to tell you, lady. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I've been doing this for all, my entire adult life. And so I have absorbed so much from so many great people. And then also have my own unique interpretation of things and why not you know it's we, I've had a, nothing but joy from it you know we, we had one full-scale production that was a, a big hit we had two variety shows fundraisers that were sold out and raised a ton of money and were so rewarding we did them like Carol Burnett show style so much fun and we were getting ready to open our second show when COVID hit which we're still going to do I'm working with a website called Weird Kentucky and we're creating an original piece that focuses on Kentucky uh, folklore oh cool it's going to be a triptych told in three different styles. So we're taking three legends and we're putting them all in one show together. And one's going to be a bluegrass musical. One's going to be a straight thriller. And one's going to be a campy broad comedy, all focusing on these Kentucky legends. And so we're working on that for the fall. And it's just really exciting. And Well, tell us how and when people can access your performance in true. Okay. They should go to www.pandoraprods.org. And you just go to the website and it'll take you through how to buy a, I don't know where, are we calling them tickets? You buy the, the link, <laughs> you get the link and you can stream it anytime, two weekends, March 26th through the 28th and April 2nd through the 4th. Awesome. I'm very excited. Yeah. 
Okay, well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Jason Cooper and with Carrie. And Carrie, what are you reading? I started listening to an audiobook. It is Lenny Kravitz's memoir, Let Love Rule. And I'm only about 30% into it. But Lenny Kravitz is a musician. He was the son of Roxy Roker, which if you are of a certain age, (laughs) you were like me and you watched the Jeffersons a lot when you were a kid. And Roxy Roker played Helen Willis. So she was the black woman whose spouse in the show was a white man. And that was Roxy Roker's real life because she was married to a white man in real life. And they had a son named Lenny Kravitz, who was a musician. And he's in his 50s now. So I'm not sure how far this memoir goes, but he narrates it. And it's super interesting because he had this really unusual upbringing. He would spend part of his time in New York in the the glitzy Upper East Side. And then he would spend part of his time with his grandparents in a different part of New York. And so he talks about how his life was sort of this yin and yang, right? So he, he experienced Black culture and white culture. And he experienced Christianity and, and Judaism. and Because his dad his was da- Jewish, right? His dad was Jewish, right. And so and it, I'm at the part in the book where his mom, they move out to California because that's where they filmed the Jeffersons. And so his dad has come out to California and he and his dad did not get along. They had some challenges in their relationship and he got along really well with his mom. So I used to listen to a lot of Lenny Kravitz. So it has made me sort of deep dive into like, oh, I'm going to put some of his songs that I haven't listened to in 25 years on my playlist again and sort of immerse myself in that, which is always kind of fun. There's a little bit of nostalgia for me just listening to him and then you know thinking about the Cosby show because he married Lisa Bonet from the Cosby show I just feel like I'm totally back in my childhood between the Jeffersons and remembering when I would see the tabloids about him and Lisa Bonet and they had gotten married and all this stuff so anyway that's what I've been reading and their daughter Zoe Kravitz she's been in a lot of I don't know she was in uh, what's the name Yes, that's the one. She's the next Catwoman, too, in the, in the next Batman movie. And she also was in a, another adaptation of High Fidelity, the book by Nick Hornby. The original had John Cusack, who played the record store owner. And in the new adaptation, she plays the record store owner. Well, and in the original, her mom was in that with John Cusack. Really? Oh yeah, she was. Lisa Bonet, yes. She was an actress. She was a musician in the okay. in the one with John Cusack. That's her mom. Hmm. Yeah. You know, we were talking about Truman and celebrity, right? So I have this fascination with celebrity. Like I don't want to be around celebrities, but I think they have these I don't know. It's kind of like my mind candy, right? (laughs) So for me, this is just sort of like this fun romp to learn about his life and how the other half lives. But at at the same time, 
they're still people, right? They might have money and they might have connections, but they still have issues, right? They still have fights with their parents and the same challenges that every other person on the planet has. So that's what I've been reading. Well, Jason, what have you been reading or listening to? I just finished and it's wonderful trash. I love it. Uh, I just finished Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. It's so fun. It's really, um, it takes a turn and it gets dark. So it gets sort of like fluffy and it's a fun, you know, kind of vampire romp. It, then it gets like, oh, this just got to like next level horror because it puts a new spin on what a vampire is in, uh, set in the early 90s in Charleston. And it's a group of women who have a book club and one of them is convinced that there's something wrong with a new neighbor. And, and she is correct. Uh, it, it, it's a lot of fun. You really like horror. So did it live up to your expectations of horror? Yes, it did. I thought it was going to be sort of horror comedy. There's a tinge of that, but it's really just a, a thriller. And it really was a lot of fun. And I, you know, it was actually somebody gave it to me for Christmas because I keep seeing it on lists. I want to get this author's Grady Hendrix. He's got a couple others that I'm really interested in, in reading now. Because if anyone's going on vacation, this is a great book to take with you. Generally, like I don't read horror or thriller books, but I have read some that I'm just like, I'm in my bed, I'm scared to go downstairs, and I can't stop reading. Yeah. Is that kind of what this one was like? Yes. Yes. Definitely made me like hear things in the house. Like, what was that? <laughs> You know, <laughs> this is why people won't lend me books because I like to read in the bathtub. Uh, <laughs> I love it. And like my friend's like, I'm not lending you a book. You give it back and the water, the pages are all puffed out and you can't close it. I'm like, the couple of nights I was here, like right in the tub reading this. We have a skylight in the bathroom. I'm like, I'm not looking up. I'll see stuff. I'm not looking up. I'm not looking up. And I love that. I love scary books. My choice of horror is usually something that is not going to happen in real life. You know, what books that really scare me are, are like, I'll be gone in the dark and, and true crime mm. because they're, you, you know, real, real horrors. I read them sometimes, but they're not for really enjoyment. It's a whole, it's a different type of experience. This is just fun. All right. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? So I think that I have mentioned that I started a read-along group with a few friends of mine who are in our regular book club, but this read-along is to read YA Lit because wow. we don't do hardly any of that in our regular book club. It's just not that, I guess, popular among most of the members, but there's several of us who wanted to read more of it. This read-along has been going on for a few months. We've done, I think, two books now. But the one that we did for February and March is a YA novel called The Black Kids by Christina Hammonds-Reed. And it came out last summer. And one of our former guests, youth librarian Natalie McCall, recommended it in episode 63. So The Black Kids is about a high school senior named Ashley who lives in Los Angeles in the 1990s. And her parents are both very successful people. Her mom is an architect. Her dad works in finance. And they live in this very affluent, predominantly white neighborhood. And they are Black. And she has a Guatemalan nanny. She goes to a private school and all of her friends are white. There are a few Black kids who go to her school, but most of them are scholarship students from poorer areas. And she doesn't tend to hang out with them because she grew up with friends who are white kids. She's best friends with three white girls. And there's sort of a mean girl situation going on where there's one queen bee and the others follow her lead. 
But what is interesting about this story is that the backdrop of the story is the Rodney King riots of 1992. And so when the book starts, the verdict for the police officers who savagely beat Rodney King has just come out and it's acquitted all of the officers. And then the rioting begins. And so I don't know if you remember much about that history, but this was one of the first cases where there was actual video footage of police officers behaving badly. And there was outrage among the black community that even with video evidence, those police officers weren't convicted. And that's when the violence, the looting, the burning of the stores and property began. So Ashley's grandparents and aunts and uncles all live in South Central L.A., where much of this rioting is taking place. And her uncle and cousin run a vacuum repair shop that's been in the family for generations, and they worry about losing that store. So there's several tensions going on in this book. There's the tension within her family, like her uncle thinking that her father has he's moved up socioeconomically, but his uncle sees it as them deserting the family at large. There's the tension that Ashley feels being torn between growing up with all of these white influences, but beginning to wonder what she should feel about herself being black. And then her older sister actually becomes part of the protests. And so there's another source of the conflict because Ashley says her family is the good kind of black people, the best. We smile and we pose slightly off to the side in the company photos, in the private school brochures. We earn awards and own businesses and go to college and donate to our inner city brethren and do our part to uplift the race. And part of that is not participating in a riot. What I appreciated about this book is that it shows a different story of growing up black. You know, no group of people is monolithic. And we just don't see very many books with upper middle class or even rich black families. And so I like seeing these different perspectives. How do you hold on to your culture while also trying to assimilate into the environment that you were grown up in? And so she's kind of caught between these two worlds. And it's the Rodney King riots that help crystallize for her who she is and whether the friends she has are serving her well anymore. That's a lot of similarity to The Hate You Give. Yes, yes. And I have read The Hate You Give, and I love that book, too. I think that the Rodney King riots being the background of this, well, it certainly is just so timely. I mean, it was this author wrote it before the the racial unrest of, of last summer, and that's when this book came out. And it's sort of like history's just repeating itself all over again. Or even mm-hmm. if you're thinking about celebrity, the interview last week Oprah did with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry where she talks about the underlying racism within the royal family and the racism that she faced being mixed race and that somebody in the royal family was concerned about how dark their children's skin should be. So I'd highly recommend it. It's well-written. And the author uses a lot of what I would call sort of snappy imagery. And by that, I mean, it's sort of fresh and it really pops. I think it would appeal to its audience, which is teenagers. Her style of writing is very engaging. And the book gives you so much to think about. And if you were a teen in the late 80s or early 90s, it gives you a good dose of nostalgia, too, because she refers to uh, the music, uh, TV shows, different things of that time. I liked it. Well, see, I keep thinking that the 90s are like 10 years ago. (laughs) Nope. All right. Well, we are going to take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Jason his top five. 
We are back with Jason Cooper, and we're going to ask him his top five. Question number one, you will complete your MFA in creative writing this year and have just finished writing a book. So first of all, we want to hear about the book. So tell us a little bit about that. It's a memoir. Uh, yeah, it is a memoir that I started writing more, over 10 years ago as a, as a therapeutic exercise. I started writing personal essays uh, and humorously looking at some pretty serious issues that I've dealt with in, in life. And it, it is a funny book about pretty serious growing pains. And being in Gen X is very prominent, too. It's definitely something that people of a certain age will identify with a lot. But I have no real ambition to be a writer. Uh, I started, like I said, I started doing this as a therapeutic exercise. And with the advent of social media, people kept saying, oh my gosh, you should write a book. You should write a book. You should write a book. So on a whim, I submitted a, a sample to the Spalding uh, School of Creative Writing, the MFA program, and they accepted me and offered me a promising new writer scholarship. So uh, I said, okay, this was never on my schedule to do. This was never on my agenda, but I roll with opportunities as they present themselves. So this will be my last term and I was accepted into the full length manuscript workshop. So I suddenly had this thing I've been working on for 10 years and had all these pieces and I had a deadline to turn them into one. Oh, wow. My manuscript. And I had a lot of fun doing it. It's something that I, like I said, I'm working on for over a decade, but I walk away from, from a, for very long periods of time because it's so personal. Sometimes you don't want to go there and sometimes you're living your life and you don't want to look back at it. But um, I suddenly had a deadline and I got it finished and I really, nobody ever looks at it, but the seven people on in this workshop, it was to be worth having done. It was a very rewarding experience. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, tell us. So having been creative as an actor and a director in the theater and also now as a as a writer what is the top skill that you have taken from the theater that you've used as a writer as a writer oh okay because I was going to say I couldn't have been a teacher if it hadn't been for the theater but as as a writer you know everyone thinks that I'm in the the playwriting program and I'm not because playwriting is really hard you can't write exposition really. So the main thing that the theater has taught me about how to write good dialogue, how, how to write dialogue the way people talk. Nothing bothers me more than seeing a play and people are like, remember when we were kids and mom did this? You don't say that to your sibling because you have shared memories. You have to do it in a way that's natural. And, and so writing dialogue, I think the theater has, has helped me hone that skill. Well, now I have to ask, so what is the story behind you not being able to be a teacher without the theater? Oh, no, because you, you're up in front of an audience every day. You know, I, I was trying to make my living as a professional theater artist for 10 years before I became a teacher. And, you know, you develop really thick skin and you have to have that as a teacher. So, you know, mm-hmm. develop thick skin as a performer. And as a teacher, you are a performer. And so you, they will try and break you. <laughs> That's true. There's some tough audiences. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think every teacher should take an acting class. For (laughs) sure, every teacher should take an acting class. All right. Question number two. So you spent several years working in theater in Chicago, and Chicago happens to be one of my favorite cities. And we all know about some of the well-known touristy things to do, like Navy Pier, Magnificent Mile, Chicago-style pizza. But as someone who has lived there, what is the top hidden gem that I should be sure to check out the next time I visit. 
Oh gosh, the city has changed so much since I lived there, but I know that the House Theater of Chicago is still there and they're a wonderful theater company and they do such original and imaginative pieces. What they do a lot of is reworking classics, which I love. They have a reimagining of The Wizard of Oz they do every few years. It blew me away the first time I saw it and I would love to produce it here one day. It's the House Theater of Chicago, definitely. And go explore the neighborhood, you know, go to Lincoln Square. And Chicago is so different from other big cities. Like Chicago is so different from New York because Chicago is a big city made up of a bunch of neighborhoods. You know what I mean? So it's a bunch of small towns in one big city. And I love it. I try to go back up at least once a year. Uh, it's really cold. I just remember the day I decided to move home to Louisville was it was like six in the morning and I was waiting for the train and I was wearing a, a balaclava over my face. It was so cold and I could still feel <laughs> And I was like, I'm going home. This is too cold. <laughs> um, when I lived in Chicago, I was coming off of three years in Memphis where I worked for a professional theater company. When I got to Chicago, I was burnt out on acting and kind of just wanted to see what else was out there. And I, I didn't get very far from the theater ever, but uh, I sort of wandered. Chicago is kind of a good city to be lost in because there's always something to, to do, to focus on, to cultivate new interests. And um, when I came back here I, to Louisville, I thought it was would be to just recharge and probably go back to Chicago at some point. But, you know, then I, I, my real life began. All right. Question number three. When you were a kid, you coerced your cousins and neighborhood kids to perform in plays that you concocted. Yes. Do you have a top favorite play you remember creating or a top story from performing? They those? always involved kidnapping. They all, <laughs> you know that, you know, I'm a child, I was a child in the eighties. And so there, you were going to get kidnapped every day. It was, a real, it was a real threat. I mean, that's what we were afraid of. So the plays, those poor neighborhood kids, man, we had always involved kidnapping. But one, I remember distinctly to my, to my girl cousins who were about the same age as me, I made us made up a song and choreography and I made them do it with me and perform it for all the relatives at Christmas. And these were the early days of like camcorders and my, my uncle had one and it has come back a couple of times over the course of my life to haunt me bad. And I think one of my cousins, <laughs> I think my cousin really still holds it against me. I don't think she, <laughs> she doesn't like me very much because of that production number I've coerced her into doing. Okay. Question number four. So you also sing and when you were a teen, you thought you wanted to be a singer, especially if it was a rock and roll band. So what was one of the top I best do. things you did to improve as a singer? I was in a cover band in the nineties and we did top 40 stuff and like I'm learning four to five new songs a week. I cannot listen to any nineties channel because it's like, if it was a, Top 40 hit in the 90s, I probably sang it. But that was sort of on a break from theater. You know, I did it as a kid. And post-high school, I started getting involved in bands. When I returned to theater, I realized that I could do four-part harmony. I could read chord charts, even sight read to a, to a certain degree. I had learned a lot of proper vocal techniques. But mostly what it taught me was to be uh, it's fast and furious. You don't get weeks and weeks to prepare. You learn these four songs, you do them for people. You move on to the next. So in that that prepared me for working at a, a professional theater later in life when I was in Memphis. Because it ain't college. You don't have a 12 weeks to block a curtain call. It's fast and it's furious. Uh, 
<laughs> that was just a really good way to cut my teeth as a performer. Again, it kind of gave you skills, gave, gave you thick skin. You're always going to have people who don't like what you're doing. Like, that was an interesting time in my life and, and, a, and a lot of fun. All right. Last question. You are a fan of movie musicals, specifically bad ones. And I personally love Xanadu when I was a kid and I listened to the soundtrack nonstop. So what is your top bad movie musical and why? You know, it probably is Xanadu. It's either Xanadu, <laughs> it's either Xanadu or Grease 2. Those are my top movie musicals. Don't give me Chicago. Don't give me... Uh, any MGM spectacles. Give me Olivia Newton-John on roller skates. <laughs> and the acting in that, like, I loved that when I was a kid. And then I watched it again when I was an adult. And I was like, it's oh, so the acting. Acting is terrible. It's so weird. I mean, the whole thing is so bananas. But you can't take your eyes off of it. Yeah. Now, I don't know that I've ever seen Grease 2. I was oh. a big fan of Grease 1. So tell us a little bit about Grease 2 and what oh. you love about that one. How could you not have seen? It's just the best. I, you know what? I'm of the school of thought. This is very controversial. That it is better than the original Grease. <gasps> yeah, I said it. Now, it's, now did it have? supposed to be cousins? Yes. In Grease 2, the girl is the, the biker greaser and the boy is prim and proper you see it's michelle pfeiffer for for crying out loud oh okay. <laughs> my grandmother had cable before we had cable and my sisters and i were so obsessed with grease too that you know they would just play certain movies on a loop back in the early right. 80s and so we would go spend the night at my grandmother's and get up at like two in the morning and watch grease too because that's when it was slated to be on so we would go to bed and then get up and watch it and it was epic that's just those some of the memories I, have. I feel like i saw it at one point but it didn't maybe because it wasn't olivia newton john it didn't these like are, i think these are movies that you have to appreciate first as children because you if you watch them as an adult you're gonna see some pretty major flaws but man it's just the nostalgia aspect of it all you know i mean but think you know watching those movies thinking like this is what high school is going to be like. <laughs> They're just making bad 80s musicals make me happy. Once we finish this, I'm going to go down to my basement because I'm pretty sure I did save my Xanadu album. So I'm going to go confirm that after we're done recording. That movie, of course, is legendary in its badness, but the soundtrack was always tops in what we're well regarded. Yes, yes. It's Electric Light Orchestra. I mean, like, once you listen to that soundtrack over and over and over again, you can never not immediately recognize ELO. We had a friend who had never seen it, and a few years ago, we, a bunch of us were like, okay, you're going you're gonna to watch Xanadu, and we're going to watch you watch it. And it was <laughs> so funny. His mouth was just sort of a gape, like, is this for real? <laughs> oh, yeah, this was for real. This was in the movie theaters. Remember, my father took us to see it. I couldn't have been more than four, but I remember seeing oh, yeah. it. And like, oh, that's it. This is everything. It has been so fun to talk with you about True, and we cannot wait to see you in it. So PandoraProds.org, and we'll be posting on our Facebook Perks of Being a Book Lover page to help promote it. So good luck. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. Thanks for joining us today. 
For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.